0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who do or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. On today's podcast is a lady who was a member of Parliament from 1987 until 2010. She was also a member of the European Parliament for seven months, ending 31st of January 2020. Ministerial roles included Employment Minister, Prisons Minister and Undersecretary of State for Social Security. She has written also, oh, I can't even say it properly. She has written an autobiography where the title gives a nod to one of her great successes, Strictly Come Dancing. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to off Greek Christianity today, Anne Widdecombe. And thank you so much for joining us today. Where are we speaking to you? I'm in Devon. Very nice part of the world. Not more. Yeah. No, very, very well indeed. Lovely part of the world. Right. As you know, we have five questions to ask you before we get into the, the main frame right. of it. So, if you're sitting comfortably, fingers on the buzzers, no conferring, we <laughs> shall start. Uh, question one, Anne: If you could invite anybody, and I mean anybody from history, for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you, you could ask them questions, who would it be?
1: I think it would be Charles II. Uh, I think he would be a massively entertaining dinner companion for a start. He had a fund of stories, particularly about his escape after the Battle of Worcester, you know, when yeah. he was hiding up the oak tree and Cromwell's soldiers were underneath. But there were moments during that escape when literally he missed Cromwell's forces by seconds, not even minutes, but seconds. So wonderful stories he could tell. But I also want to ask him uh, if he did marry Lucy Waters, Uh the consensus is that he I did not, but the fact is he does refer to her as his wife on a couple of occasions. So I'd like to know that, and he's the only one who can answer that, man.
0: Yeah, well, definitely. That's a great thing. And, of course, what people might not know is that if you travel the length and breadth of England uh, and you see some pubs that unfortunately are closing, quite a few of them are called the Royal Oak. And I believe Indeed. that's where they got the title from.
1: That's exactly where they got the title from. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you want to ask those kind of questions, because if I had a chance of interviewing uh, somebody alive or dead, I think I'd have to choose Winston Churchill um, just to find out if there's anything that was we don't know about yet from the Second World War.
1: I think you wouldn't find him quite as entertaining as Charles II. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, I think, uh, yes, it would be a great fund of history. But I think it's more or less been done to death. I'm reading a book at the moment um, called Appeasing Hitler. Uh, by Tim Boovery, uh-huh. uh, which is looking at unpublished correspondence, which I always think is is the best way now to do history because all the formal state papers have been looked at for heaven's sake. There's yeah, nothing yeah. new under the sun, uh, but he's got he's going into a lot of unpublished correspondence, um, and uh, I. Once somebody starts doing that, there's very little to be revealed. So I, I'd rather have Charles II, about whom there are still lots of questions, than Winston Churchill, about whom there are very few questions now.
0: Right. Well, in that case, then, I'm going to scrub Winston off my list, and I'll come up with, some- <laughs> <laughs> I'll come up with someone better. Thank you. No, that's very good. Uh, question two, Anne. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable?
1: Well, I'm going to go for, but not for the reasons, you might okay. suppose. I'm going to go for the Good Samaritan, because mm-hmm. there is a hidden um, lesson in that parable that nobody ever seems to talk about, well, except me when I'm, when I'm preaching in an Oxford chapel. Apart from that, nobody ever seems to talk about it, which is this. It's trust. It's the role played by trust. Because if you go to the end of that parable, uh, the Good Samaritan gives the innkeeper money, Mm-hmm. Uh-huh and says, you know, use this for this man's care. And when I'm next passing, and in biblical terms, don't forget that could have been a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, he's not whizzing up and down a motorway. Uh, When I'm next passing, um, I'll make it up to you if you use too much. Now, um, if you use more. Now, the man who the innkeeper had to trust that the Good Samaritan really would come by and make up any difference the Good Samaritan in turn had to trust that the innkeeper wouldn't chuck the man out as soon as the Good Samaritan had, had gone. Um, and that he wouldn't cheat him, that he wouldn't say he'd spent more if he hadn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, That that, you know that, And that he would use the money that he'd been given specifically for that man's care. There was trust. Um, and there's precious little of it about today.
0: That's a great answer. Do you know what? I don't think I've heard that bit. I've heard the story many, many times, the parable. That's a great answer. Thank you. I'm buzzing already. Thank you. (laughs) Well, this is the the first time in all my years of asking this question that it could have actually been for you. Um, If you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or
1: impose a new law, Anne Whitcomb, what would
0: it have been? Or what would it be?
1: I would repeal the 1967 Abortion Act and the 1990 Abortion Act completely uh, so that we protected unborn life. Because? Uh, Because um, what we do at the moment is we uh, destroy human beings. And it's solely because they can't be seen. I mean, if we could see uh, uh, small babies, and when I say small babies, I'm I'm being quite literal because we have abortion up to birth in this country, which I think a lot of people don't realise. If we could see... Uh, the little ones that are being taken in uh, to be aborted, there'd be an uprising, but of course you can't see them. Mm. So it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, And uh, a lot of it is profoundly illogical. What is the difference with a child a couple of weeks before birth and a couple of weeks after birth? But the child a couple of weeks after birth has full human rights and full protection in law. And the child two weeks before has none.
0: Can we just clarify something there? Because, you know, we often hear banded around that it was, um, the limit was 24 weeks. But you're yes. saying it's up to two weeks
1: before birth? No, no, no. I'm saying it's up to birth itself. Um, only in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 24 weeks is what is called the social limit. So right. you don't really even have to give reasons for having an abortion up to 24 weeks. You, know, you just don't want the child. And that is also illogical. Because if you think about it, you can have two children side by side, um, exactly the same age, exactly the same gestation. uh, And one is born prematurely and is in a secure uh, unit where everybody is fighting like mad to save that child. And the other of exactly the same gestation is just taken from its mother's womb and disposed of. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is that the one is wanted and the other isn't. Now, that is immoral. Uh, so yes, there is a 24-week limit for social abortion, um, but for the first time in 1990, we introduced abortion up to birth in this country. So if the child is handicapped, and by that I don't mean um, you know profoundly so, it can be done for Down's children, and mm-hmm. um, we had that famous court case recently where a, a Down's lady tried to say that this was discrimination, as indeed uh, it can be done for Down's children. Uh, and um, it's uh, is either handicap or it's, um, it's to uh, if the mother's life is in danger. Well, the mm-hmm. fact is, if the mother's life is in danger, you always would induce early, or you wouldn't seek to kill. Yeah, You'd yeah. induce with a view to having an early birth. Yeah,
0: it's interesting because um, I've asked this question several times down several episodes of this podcast, and the number of times this comes up as n- the number one. And I yeah. was chatting to, uh, I suppose I can call him a friend I've never met him. We emailed each other through a business thing that um, I was inquiring about and he's decided to answer. So I thought, right, okay, have a listen to my podcast. You know, you want to become a journalist, have a listen, see what you think. And he wrote back to me late last night saying that, you know, he isn't a Christian. Uh, he would have done this, he would have done that. Uh, but he gave up when the person concerned said that they wanted to uh, change the abortion law. And he said, said, that is so abhorrent to me. You know, I'm so steaming ahead with it. I can't, like this. So um, what would you say to these people who don't want to to listen or are so, with their mindset, like you are for your side, their mindset is on the other side where it's
1: it's the right thing? Well, I mean, it it cannot be the right thing to kill. Um, That can never be the right thing. And particularly when, as our laws allow, um, you can kill even when a child is viable. And that is to say, could survive outside the womb. So uh, that can never, ever be right. Now, uh, to me, you know, you, you open up a complete minefield when you try to decide where life starts. And the sort of people you're talking about say, well, it starts at birth. But as I say, you know, you tell me the difference, a child two weeks before and a child two weeks after. There's no difference. There's absolutely no difference at all, except it hasn't happened to have arrived yet.
0: Thank you, Anne. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, I said beforehand, I'm going to be nice to you. I'm not trying to be controversial at all. It's just really nice uh, how you're answering these. Thank you. Question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please, Anne?
1: I think it it came uh, in uh, the earlier part of the century uh, when I used to take my mother on cruises. Oh, wow. And We went to uh, Iceland and Greenland, and my mother didn't because she wasn't up to it then, but I and a friend uh, went up in a helicopter on top of a glacier. Yeah, yeah. Now, amazingly, it's infested with mosquitoes on top of the glacier. Couldn't believe it. But you have to wear a net. It's so bad. Wow. Um, But uh, that's obviously not what I enjoyed, not wearing (laughs) a net against the (laughs) mosquitoes. the thing thing I really, really loved was you stood there and you could hear the boom um, as a bit of ice broke up and, yeah. and you were just standing in what was effectively very, very unvisited territory. Wow. Wow.
0: That reminds me, because, you know, you, you were high profile when you were an MP and you were going on these holidays. What about security? How did you cope with that?
1: I never had security in my, my entire life, and I didn't need it. I didn't need it.
0: Wow, that's good. Good. What about all these people coming up to you and say, oh, I know you, and all that sort of stuff?
1: Oh, yeah, they do all the time, absolutely all the time. And some will be quite rude, some, not often, not often, on the whole, we're very British and we pass by if we don't like the person concerned, uh, but, but occasionally, yes, it does happen. Um, but I've never felt, I remember once, you know, we, we got a death threat in the office purporting to come from the IRA. Yeah. And my staff were in a tears, and I said, come on, the IRA don't send you notice. They just do it, throw it in the bin. Uh, and I, I think, you know, nowadays everybody's terribly uptight about security, etc., etc. Mm. If you go into that job uh, and you're too fussed about your safety, it's a bit like going into the army and not wanting to get shot.
0: Yes, yes. Well, you won't see me going into the army or into or me. <laughs> We're both too old. <laughs> oh. Just the other side of the, the upper age limit, obviously. Um, question five, Ed. Uh, what has been your most embarrassing moment to, to date, please?
1: Well, I think, um, Oh, right, I mean, you could say the entire Strictly. I don't know. I never felt embarrassed. But I always thought it was great fun, but yeah. other people seem to think I should feel embarrassed. Um, but I think, no, I think... Um, it's not an embarrassing moment. It's a rather funny moment, actually, but it was embarrassing for the person concerned. Um, There's this great formality in Parliament where every day starts with the Speaker's procession and the Speaker's in in those days, Whig as well, Mm. Whig and gown, and he processes from his Speaker's house to um, the chamber And he comes along a very long corridor called the Library Corridor. Then he comes up into um, uh, the public lobby. And then he goes through the public lobby to members lobby. And then he goes into the house and up to his um, chair. Now, it's a very long procession. And it's very formal. As I say, he's in his wig and gown. Behind him comes the mace bearer carrying the mace know, No, and behind him comes a train bearer holding up his gown. Behind him comes the mace bearer. And then you've got the clerk of the Commons with his book, you know, and they all walk in this long procession. And when they come into the public lobby, that's where members of the public are allowed to be, um, the policeman on duty calls out, Hats off, strangers! Well, of course, nobody wears a hat these days. But, of course, as soon as he calls that out, there's dead silence. Everybody's wondering... What's going to happen next? Yeah. Uh, And one on one occasion, when the speaker, the policeman had just called, hats off, strangers, a Labour MP came out of the members' lobby, and he saw Neil Kinnock in the distance, and he wanted to attract his attention, and he called out Neil, and everybody did. (laughs) (coughs) And that's a true story. Well, it's a true story that I think has probably gained a few edges over the years. But yes, it was basically a true story.
0: <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you what. Thank you so much for those uh, so far. You mentioned politics um, and the member of the opposition. And of course, you were in opposition as well for some time. But um, Jack Straw, uh, the reason why I'm mentioning Jack Straw is that apparently he he's a Christian as well, but... How did you cope when you like talking about really important things uh, such as, you know, women prisoners and Jack Straw was ag- against it, you were for it. And then like a few weeks later or a couple of days later, you might meet up, to, you know, in, in a chamber for a time of prayer. How, how did you cope with members of the opposition who were claimed um, to be Christians? I mean, people often ask
1: this. They say, do you ever talk to members of the opposition? Yeah. you have a drink with them. For heaven's sake, it would be unbearable in the House of Commons uh, if you carried political arguments into sort of personal um, relationships. I'm one of my best friends in Parliament. I had two really, really good friends. One was the late Sir David Amos, who was sadly murdered. Uh, but the other uh, was David Alton, yes. uh, who is a Liberal Democrat MP. He is. And we got to know each other because we worked together on his abortion bill uh, in the uh, the late 80s uh and uh we've remained friends i'm godmother to one of his children um he came he was one of my sponsors when i was received into the catholic church we get on like a house on fire until we talk politics and then it's the end and you just accept that you know people are human beings they see things differently uh it is only very recently that we've got this sort of intolerant attitude you know that if you hold a view that other people don't hold, you shouldn't be heard, you should be cancelled, as they say. Yes,
0: yes. David Orton had the pleasure, I oh, was back um, in my UCB days, going down to interview him in Houses of Parliament, and I remember his little office, it was up a stairway, um, and it was, it was not bigger than a broom cupboard. It was, it was so small, and he was explaining that how many ever MPs they had in those days. You know, everyone needed an office, and that, that was his office. And then he took me into the, the House of Commons itself, and peering down, uh, I'll tell you how long ago it was, because William Hague was the Secretary of State for Wales. At the oh, time. yes, yeah. <clears throat> and about Mate, 20 people in there, and I was thinking, wow, I'm in a chamber, and I'm seeing the spontaneity going on. It was fantastic. What do you remember about spontaneity when when you were there
1: and you had to get up on your feet and speak straight away? Oh, well, you very often do. I remember one nightmare of an occasion when I was the Pensions Minister and uh, there was a a small measure on national insurance, and it was supposed to take five minutes before the end of the day at 10 o'clock. So I was there ready. and I got a message from the whip saying, get into the chamber immediately. And the previous business was collapsing. So I had this small measure uh which should have taken about five minutes and i had to keep going for an hour i had to keep going for an hour well on those occasions the works so are wonderful they get everybody in the chamber to stand up and interrupt and ask questions and interventions and all the rest all of right it. um and i sort of said very tendentiously i mean a, a, a firmer speaker i think would have said you can't do that i said now let us just look for a moment at the history of this and how it's got you know and this sort of rot. and i talk I didn't talk lot, but I talked irrelevancy for about 50 minutes out of the uh, hour that I had. Wow. That's classic filibustering, isn't it? Well, in a way, that is filibustering, because normally when you're filibustering, you're trying to talk something out. You're trying to ensure it doesn't happen. Uh, With me, it was a question of the previous business had collapsed early, and I just had to get up to when everybody would be coming in for the votes. (laughs) And you did. And I did. I did. <laughs> oh,
0: brilliant, brilliant. Am I right in saying, Anne? Um, <clears throat> and the reason for asking is, um, and it's not to catch you out at all. Um, yeah, yeah. You were uh, part of the Northern Ireland office under John Major? Am I right? No. No. You're wrong. I,
1: uh, oh. I, uh, I've never been either in shadow or in office uh, in Northern Ireland. Never. Never in either of the two. I don't quite know. Why you might have got that impression. Oh, I, I should check my resources on that one
0: and, and send the minions out to sort it out. But <laughs> you were at the time, though, involved, obviously, <clears throat> backstage, knowing what was going on. What, what do you remember of the, the peace process, you know, the, the times leading up to the peace process, Good Friday Agreement?
1: Well, I'm always slightly irritated because people tend to say it was Tony Blair who got the peace in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. That it was John Major. Uh, it was John Major who started the whole ball rolling. Uh, and who decided that, yes, we were going to talk to the IRA. Now, that may sound to you quite obvious, but the line that Thatcher had always taken was, we don't deal with terrorists. They're common murderers. We do not talk to the IRA. Uh, John Major recognised that if you're going to have a peace process, you've got to involve both sides. Otherwise, you might just as well not bother. Uh, so he did start. Um, Well, the government started talking to the IRA very carefully to start with. Uh, But of course, we couldn't say that that was what was going on. Indeed, most of us didn't even know, you know, this was known to very few people, uh, what was going on. And there was some sort of challenge to John to say, you know, will you talk to the IRA? And he said no. And later, everybody, uh, not everybody, later, some members of the Labour Party tried to make trouble over that. Uh, and uh, the public, the press, and indeed the Labour front bench just said, stop it, you know, we've got a peace process. Uh, And uh, it went well, it went well. And Blair built on that, and I was really very saddened when Blair made his statement in the House of Commons, I was there when he made it on the uh, the peace agreements, didn't give any credit to John at all, and I thought that was very petty and mean-minded on him.
0: Well, thank you for setting that straight. I had the privilege uh, last week of interviewing Martina Purdy, uh, who was the BBC political correspondent for Northern Ireland, until about 10 years ago when she then became a nun. And uh, so I had the pleasure of interviewing her. And she was talking about the the peace process and the signing of the forms and everything else like that. And it was was incredible to hear from her side of the story, together also with a lady called Linda Gould, who is a Presbyterian working through the troubles as well. From you know, 1998 onwards to now, what do you think about the peace process and how's it going?
1: Well, uh, I mean, we, we've got peace on the mainland, certainly, uh, and Northern Ireland is much more peaceful uh, than it was. I mean, you and I both lived through the troubles; we know exactly what it was like. You know, it was it was an incident a day, pretty well, um, and including some very very big nasty ones. I mean, I myself missed the uh, the Brighton bomb. Uh, by about 20 minutes. Oh, really? Uh, yes, I'd been drinking in the bar. Well, I was much younger in those days. I'd been drinking in the bar with some fellow candidates, you know, and we were all very ambitious. And yeah. about 20 to 3 uh, in the morning, I said, well, I, I thought I was going off to bed. I'm sure they regarded me as a funny duddy uh, But I went off, and uh, the bomb went off 20 minutes later, and those of my friends who'd stayed at the bar were caught in it. Um they were okay. Uh, I think one of them had dust the inhal- inhalation, but apart from that they were okay. But of course I lost, you know, I lost a good friend in the bomb. Um and uh, so I missed that by 20 minutes. So for us, the point I was making, I get rather rambly now, the point I was making was we know exactly, you know, what the troubles were like. Um and you haven't got anything like that now. So from that point of view, that point of view, the peace process was successful. Um Unfortunately that process and the Good Friday Agreement uh, have been used in the course of the Brexit negotiations to try and unravel Brexit Uh, and to my mind it was always a big distraction because there is a border, we know where the EU ends and where the UK begins Mm -hmm. and you do not need a hard border, you don't need to go back to policing the border as such. but knowing where it is, you know, we could have done by technological surveillance and all the rest of it, checked on stuff that was going over the border and as to whether it in it, it had registered, uh, registered the right documents, etc. We could have done all of that. Um, and I think that is what we should have insisted on. Instead of which, they created a fresh border down the Irish Sea. Uh, and, you know, it's threatening the union itself. And I am furious with Boris for ever agreeing that. Um and so uh, I think now the peace, the, the Good Friday Agreement, is being used uh, as a political football instead of doing what it was designed to do, which is to keep the peace, and which is very successfully done.
0: Mm-hmm. We'll still clear the rest of that. I <laughs> 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 well, think wisdom dictates because uh, that's. But thank you for showing that. Um, Obviously, I'd like to talk more about your faith, if that's okay, um, because I want to encourage those listening today who, as I said right at the very beginning, you know, they might be disillusioned uh, despite everything that's going on in their lives and thinking, well, where is God? For everything that you've gone through, and you've already alluded to some things, what does your faith mean to you these days, Anne?
1: Well, when people say, you know, where's God? Uh, I always wonder what they expect this earth to be. It's not meant to be heaven, really, is not meant to be heaven it's a, a preparation for the same, and but this earth is a veil of tears. You know, it's the valley of the shadow of death. it's 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 not supposed to be God is not supposed to be um a benign grandfather who makes everything all right as soon as he's uh, applied to. I think sometimes uh, we tend to treat him, and I you know I include myself in this, mm. you know, some sort of performing magician, you know, who will just sort of um whisk away all the difficulties and the way we talk to him in church, you know, grant world peace. oh yeah. World peace, as if you know the earth isn't populated by sinful human beings. And the bit I always quote is not actually the Bible, I don't know whether you've ever seen it. Very famous film called Hacksaw Ridge, yes, Mel Gibson. Yes. yes, uh, was it Mel? I don't know, but Desmond Doss, who is the hero of Hacksaw Ridge, um, Desmond Doss rescued 75 people, he was. A non combat medic. He was a conscientious objector he was, who was yeah. a medic. Yep. Yeah. And he rescued seventy-five people. Now the bit I quote is this. Every time, and this is not fiction from the film, this is fact. He says it himself. Every time he got one more to the ridge and let him down, he prayed to God, Just let me get one more. He did. Just let me get one more. Not, oh God, spare all those you know, none of that stuff. Let me get one more. And there were two things there, I think. First, it was a very specific prayer. But secondly, he was asking God's blessing on something he was doing. Uh, uh, So let me get one more. Um, And so he went on until he brought out 75. There were no more to bring out as far as I know. Anyway. Uh, And we don't do that. We don't say, you know, bless the efforts of some aid worker in Syria or something. Um, We say grant world peace. Now, I think it's... And if you actually look at the Bible, they don't pray in those terms in the Bible. They pray very, very specifically. Uh, God didn't... uh, Christ didn't walk through the Holy Land saying, let all lepers be cured. He dealt with particular ones who came to him. Uh, And I just think we need to get an idea of what this earth is about. And I say that when I myself... You know, we all do it, don't we? We all just... Ask God to put everything right. We do. Yeah. We, it, it's human nature to do that. Uh, but sometimes what we've got to do is try and put it right ourselves and ask his blessing on our efforts, which is different.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try and redeem myself here. I think Mel Gibson was the director of the film.
1: Ah, right. It could well be. Could well be. <laughs> <laughs> but I know he didn't play Desmond Doss. I can see Desmond Doss in my mind's eye, and it wasn't Mel Gibson. It definitely <laughs> wasn't.
0: It definitely wasn't. I should remember it was. I think it was a an English actor. Oh, I, can't I
1: can't remember, but he he was very very good. Whoever he was. But the story yeah. itself, which apparently um was itself filleted, because Mel or whoever was directing, uh didn't think viewers would believe it. So some of the more miraculous events were actually taken out. Oh really? Yes, to keep it um, credible to us mortals on this earth.
0: Wow, wow. So let's go right back to the beginning of your your Christian faith, that's right, And How did you become a Christian when did you become a Christian, please?
1: Well, look, evangelicals always say, you know, there's an exact moment of conversion, you ask the Lord into your heart and that's it. Yeah. Um, And I went through allegedly such a process when I was about eight years old I had a uh, an evangelical vicar for a brother uh, and he took me to an evangelical meeting in Tunbridge Wells and asked me at the end did I want to ask the Lord into my heart or what does a child say in those circumstances I yeah, said yeah. Yeah, yeah and so that is pointed to I don't I don't believe that at all I think that uh, I mean it can happen that way it did yeah. with uh, but I also think It can happen so gradually as to be imperceptible. And I always um, adduce that argument because I became an agnostic and then came back to Christianity. And there was no flash in the night. You know, there was no great sort of event. Um, I became an agnostic through a gradual erosion of belief. And I came back to Christianity through a gradual erosion of unbelief. Uh, so that one day I might have said I was an agnostic, the next day I might have said I was Christian, the next day I might have said I was an agnostic. It's a very, very slow and sometimes imperceptible pro- process. And I don't, I've never subscribed to the view that there has to be a moment that you can point to. I don't think it works like that.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I, you know, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Actually, I can't remember the date, but I do remember eventually one night reluctantly sitting on the staircase I say okay then come into my life jesus you know that sort of stuff and what resonated with me was short time afterwards i was reading a c.s lewis book and c.s lewis himself said he went to bed that night the most despondent of all christians you know because nothing happened i didn't have the fireworks either so um <laughs> oh, cool. i know what is, is that you, you mean you mentioned your brother yes tell me more about him please because we do have a tenuous link here
1: yes he was canon kind of malcolm woodicum um he uh, went to Theological College in, in Bristol, and one of the churches that he uh, was assigned to during his curacy, he then took over as the priest in charge. He wasn't granted the living immediately because that church was scheduled for closure. Are we talking about St. Philip and, and Jacob here. We're talking about St. Philip and St. Jacob in Bristol, yes. and that church was scheduled for closure, uh, and he was just there to sort of see it through. Well, he took a completely different view and his motto was Seek first, seek first the kingdom of God, you know, and all else shall be added unto you. So he didn't try fundraising, we didn't have a you know, a barometer outside the church showing how much had been donated, how much you still had to go, it didn't do anything like that. He gave away the church's funds to missions. Seek first the kingdom of God. He gave the money away. Uh, And uh, the net result of all of this was that um, he got an evening congregation of 200, which had been about 20, and the church was saved from closure. And it went from strength to strength. It became one of the biggest evangelical churches for miles around. A lot of students used to come from Bristol University. Uh, And uh, it it, it became quite famous in its time. But it was founded on this one principle, Seek First. Wow. So he gave the money away at a time when, you know, most vicars or priests in charge would have been trying to get the money in, gave it away. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I was chatting to a, a vicar friend of mine uh, only a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I'd be interviewing you. He said, oh, I used to know her brother. Uh, yeah. So um, here's a quote, uh, and I, I assume it to be correct, um, is that um, apparently your brother didn't believe in purgatory. Is that right?
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, he, he, was a, he wasn't a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, he said, um, so when our, my vicar friend Martin, what's his name? Is Martin said to him, um, I take it you don't believe in purgatory, Malcolm. He said, uh, no, I do, because I went to theological college.
1: <laughs> that's quite likely. Yeah, that is quite likely. He hated it uh, because he wasn't interested in theory. You know, he had to have these qualifications, but he wasn't interested in theory. Um, He wasn't interested in the abstruse uh, side of church history. He wasn't interested in that. He just wanted to get out and work for the Lord. Uh, and uh, therefore, it took him rather longer at theological college than it should have done. He had to have an extra year. Wow.
0: So I suppose that basically means that uh, all these talks that we had in the 80s and 90s, and I'll say why well, this in a minute, about um, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, all these amillennialisms, and all these tribulations and stuff that people thought were very, very important. Malcolm would have said, not interested in that, and would, he would have just torn it up. Would I be right in saying that?
1: He was interested in 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 just working for the Lord. That was all he cared about. He didn't care about theory, never had an academic approach to, to theology, never, never. Uh, he was interested solely uh, in, you might say, getting on with it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, on uh, Monday night, just gone, uh, and the interview is going to be going out, I have to make sure it goes out before yours now. Uh, (laughs) uh, Sarah Billups from America has just written an amazing book where she talks about the 80s and 90s and all these conversations that most probably helped destroy people's faith and and everything else. And so it's from her point of view. But one thing she did say, you become an evangelical, you then become an Anglican, and later you'll become a Catholic. And I said, yeah. what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you said because basically more and more people in Church of England would or oh, the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian in America uh, like more of the liturgy and stuff like that. Mm. So for her to say that, I thought, oh, can't wait to ask Anne, because, you know, you went from. I literally did. Yeah. 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 So t- please tell me more about w- why you we went through that process.
1: Right. The final straw was the ordination of women. And it wasn't so much even the ordination of women. Uh, it was the debate that surrounded it. And the debate wasn't about, is this theologically possible? Um, It was all about, if we don't do this, we won't appeal to the wider world. And I thought, hang on, hang on. The duty of the church is to lead, not follow. But that was the last straw. There was already a huge bundle of straw. Um, My big mistake was when I was coming back from agnosticism, I should have gone to Rome then. Uh, Because when I looked at the churches from afar, I came to realize that Rome regarded truth as truth and immutable and the Church of England regarded truth as, you know, uh, completely changeable to suit whatever circumstances there were uh, and tried to fill its pews basically by sacrificing creed to compromise. I mean, that that was what Mm. it came down to. Uh, And so I left the the C of E. Now, interestingly, my brother, I mean, who was an evangelical and certainly didn't believe in half the Catholic canon. uh, My brother came to my service of reception into the Catholic Church and actually participated on the altar in his robes. And that was an endorsement because he, too, was thoroughly disillusioned with the Church of England. But he had nowhere to go. You know, he had, an, he had an enormous flock. He wasn't going to come to Rome because he, he didn't accept half the doctrine. Uh, so what was he to do? And 348 priests left the C of E at that time. Mm. Um, and a small handful of bishops uh, and a member of the royal family, about five members of parliament, were leaving at that time because they were all similarly, I think, wanting a church that said truth is truth. And although it hadn't come out by then, within a couple of years of my being accepted into the uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, we had the papal, um, we had the um, papal, um, whatever it was called, you almost said papal bull, that's going back several centuries, encyclical was the word I was looking for. We had a papal encyclical called Veritatis Splendor, The Shining of Truth. And its thesis was what had drawn me into the Catholic Church, although it hadn't then been published. Its thesis was something can be enormously popular but deeply wrong and something can be profoundly unpopular but right. Mm. And what you have to do is look at right and wrong, truth and falsehood, not at what goes down well. And the Church of does the exact opposite. I suppose you can can it's embroiled in a discussion now as to whether we should say our father, and you know, in, 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 you know <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. politically incorrect. Yeah. I? I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, it's as if you're trying to appease the masses. Yeah. Like, just to get votes. And they don't
1: come into church, you know. You don't get them as a result of that. And this is what the Church of England doesn't seem to understand. There are two growing churches in the world. One is the Catholic Church. One's the Evangelical. And why? Because they both say this is truth. I don't mess.
0: Yeah. So I take it then that your brother might have been a little bit miffed, but not very miffed.
1: He wasn't at all miffed. He was on my side completely.
0: Wow. That's brilliant. Hence, I suppose, a, a quote here that I found from a very well-known person. I might be looking at that person right now. Uh, For years, I've been disillusioned by the Church of England's compromising on everything. The Catholic Church doesn't care if it is unpopular.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: So... Going back to the 1980s, one of the the big questions thrown at me when I first became a Christian. So I'd love to hear your vote, your your thought on this. I'm going to sit well back just in case. (laughs) Uh, And you've most probably heard this several times. You can't
1: be a Christian and a Catholic. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, it is complete nonsense. Uh, I mean, as far as the Catholics are concerned, you know, we were all Catholics until the Reformation, yeah. Uh, So it is a nonsense to say you can't be a Christian and a Catholic. I need to hear why the two are supposed to be uh, incompatible before I can answer, because I could be answering a hundred different questions. Uh, But as far as I'm concerned, our Lord founded his church when he said, uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Petram, you know, that you are Peter Petrus, and upon this rock I, I will found my church, and I will give you the keys, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, and he went on to say, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shalt be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shalt be loosed in heaven. Now that to me is a very, very clear authority uh, to Peter and to the early church. Um, and from that we stand. Now, if you want me to say that the Catholic Church has always been a force for good, patently obviously it wasn't. Mm. You know? I mean, the Catholic Church, like all other collections of human beings, went through a stage of extreme corruption, um, and even by the standards of the time, and you've always, you know, we, we talk about the Borgias, for example, but you could look at standards of the time. Yeah, yeah. But even, that even by the standards of the time um, w- was just simply not right. Uh, and I welcome the Reformation as being a good thing. But I also believe that it would have come within the course of the next 50 to 100 years anyway. Uh, and the rather violent way it was done uh, didn't help. Slaughter of the Anabaptists, for example. Yes,
0: yes, yes. And we've talked about that in a previous uh, episode as well, about the Anabaptists as well. Going back Um, to your political career, if that's all right, Anne. Yeah. um, Where do you see Jesus or God turn up in your life to take you through a situation that you thought there's going to be, well, problems ahead, let's put it that way?
1: Well, I mean, one of the worst uh, things I ever had to do in, in Parliament, I denounced Michael Howard, um, who had been the Home Secretary, yeah. uh, over his treatment of the head of the prison service, Derek Lewis. Now, you know, that may not sound much to anybody just listening to this, but if you attack members of your own side, you really do become a bit of a pariah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the events that I was taking him to task over had actually happened 18 months earlier. Um, but I had not been able to say anything because I was minister in the department, it was collective responsibility, but I'd always said, always said, when this is over, you know, by which I meant the election, when this is over, I am going to say everything I know, and nobody who was my friend, people like David Amos, David Orton, nobody wanted me to do it, but I decided I would do it. And I remember sitting there in the House of Commons, I mean, the press had been going mad over it for a week. I remember sitting there in the House of Commons and the speaker called my name, and I thought I really don't want to do this. And as I stood up, I was saying um, to myself in my head, "I was saying, Lord, see me through this." And suddenly, a huge beam of sunshine came through the window, yeah, and yeah. I thought, "Thanks." <laughs> and then I knew it was the right thing. Wow! And then what happened? Um, well, I—I I obviously had to leave the front bench. You've gone to tack somebody um, on your own side from the front bench. I had mm. to leave the front bench. I spent a year uh, out of either office, well, obviously not office, because we weren't in part, but I spent a year out of um, shadow office. Uh, and then I came back, uh, and uh, really that speech, which was known as something of the night, um, although that was a phrase I didn't use in the speech. I used it in uh, in some press comment. Mm. um that phrase um, more or less put me on the map, and I had a year of really quite an interesting year, doing an awful lot in the media.
0: Yes, yes. Covid. Covid. Covid, especially you've seen. We've you know we've come through it. Unfortunately, many people died from it. But <laughs> from uh, where I'm coming from here, I see quite a few people now just giving up going to church as if, you know, they're, they're hanging on by their fingernails to God. Where do you see uh, the UK in particular with, the, with regards to the Christian faith and where is, it, where is it going?
1: Well, first of all, I thought the churches let down um, their flocks uh, during COVID. Uh, the government said close the churches and they closed. Hmm. Uh, my view is that we should have defied the government. Um, now, we could have brought in, you know, all manner of measures. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done that. Uh, but we should have kept the churches open so that people could go in individually to pray. And if there are lots of pews between you and the next person praying, as there would be if people were just going in individually, yeah. um, then, you know, there was no danger at all. And I thought the churches should have taken a much stronger line and should have said, you lay down the criteria, O government, but we're staying open. You know, you can tell us how many people can be in a, in a church at a given time. You can tell us that they must wear masks. Obviously, you can tell us this, that and the other thing. But we're staying open. That's what the churches should have done. Now, they didn't. They shut. Um, and although the Catholic Church complained, it still obeyed the law, which you, know, you, you might expect.
0: Yeah, it was a But I, be, yeah. Thought,
1: I thought there should have been a much tougher response from the churches. So if they weren't going to be open at the very time when people were likely to be seeking God, we know that after nine eleven, you know, church congregations swell because people were trying to make sense of it. Um, uh, and yet, the churches were closed. And um, I, uh, I don't blame people uh, for losing confidence in the church as a result of that.
0: Was it deliberate? Do you think? Was uh, a deliberate ploy because they wanted to get Christianity out of the UK? Oh no, no, no!
1: no I don't think there was any conspiracy theory like that at all. I think um, you know, the government just decided everything had to shut and because. Churches had lots of people in them in one go. If you remember, funerals were limited to 15 people, etc. But you see, that is fine. They didn't prevent funerals. They just said there are limits. And I didn't want them to say the churches can do absolutely anything they like. What I wanted them to say was the churches will stay open. Here are the rules. And what's wrong with that?
0: Yes. What do you think the
1: government have learnt from all this? Well, probably nothing. I mean, I was against, let me come clean, I was against the lockdowns. Uh, I was against universal lockdowns. I thought we should have locked down uh, the vulnerable and the very elderly and told everybody else it was their duty to keep the economy going. Instead of which, we crashed the economy. We're now all paying for it, including the poor uh, and the vulnerable. Everybody's now paying for this. We crashed the economy um, and didn't stop COVID spreading. And so uh, I, I was never ever in favour of universal lockdowns. Uh, there were other measures I thought were perfectly sensible. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I had a pleasure. Of re- someone sent me that um, uh, hand sign. What's what's the um, medical journal that goes out? The Lancet. Thank you, The Lancet. Um, and someone sent me a, a, an article written by a GP from Northern Ireland, and basically what she was saying was that. Um, it was like a, a row of dominoes, and all the countries were were lined up like dominoes, and you're all looking to see ahead as to what the next country was doing. And it all goes back to the first country was saying, "Well, how's China dealing with it? Oh, they're going in lockdown, so therefore we go." Would that be a fair comment?
1: I now I think it was an act of political cowardice. I think. The government thought if we don't lock down and this spreads like wildfire, we, we, the government, are going to be blamed. And I think governments in, you know, not just our government, governments across the world thought that, you know, we must be seen to be doing everything we can, because if we don't, we'll be blamed. Rather than, as they did in Sweden, uh, with Anders Tegel, ask uh, not what, you know, what uh, absolutely every last thing can we do, but what is effective? What should we be doing that's effective? Um, and uh, they didn't suffer any more than anybody else.
0: Mm-hmm. So, thank you for answering that as well. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the UK, where do you see the Christian country going as
1: far as the faith? Well, it's not much of a Christian country at the moment. I mean, it's it's very, very tenuous, and I should be interested to see what the coronation uh, is like. Uh, because, yes, I'm all for including everybody, but, you know, the, Coronation is about the governor of the Church of England As well as the monarch Uh, And whatever I may think of the Church of England it nevertheless Is the symbol of Christianity in this country Uh, And so I will be very interested to see what happens (coughs) But I always say this it's no good moaning and groaning uh, About the decline Of Christianity in this country Because ultimately it isn't up to the government It isn't up to the Church of England It isn't up to some archbishop somewhere Not even up to the papal nuncio it's actually up to Christians themselves. And how did you know, Christianity ever spread? Well, the early church, the early Christians took out the message. They didn't wait around for somebody else to do it. They took out the message. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what we're not doing as Christians. Uh, and if we don't stand up for ourselves, if we don't spread the good news. If we don't um, you know, show, uh, show what we believe, why on earth do we expect anybody else to do it for us? Well, why do we expect God to bless our (laughs) non-efforts?
0: No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's like you were saying, you were um, one minute an agnostic, the next minute you were thinking go back to Christianity, then an agnostic again. If you could have your time back and speak to yourself, what would you say about getting out of the agnosticism earlier? What would you have said?
1: Oh, I wouldn't. I was quite prepared, you know, for it to to happen as it did, which was naturally, by degrees. Uh, but very, very certainly, uh, and that's the whole point. Very, very certainly, it happened, and I don't, um, I don't regret that period because uh, I think that um, you know, without uh, fear, you don't need courage. Without doubt, you don't need faith, um, and without uh, some sort of challenge to what you think, you never actually rethink your position. So. I don't regret that period particularly. I never have.
0: Mm, that's good. That's good. I'm very thin-skinned. Obviously, you're, you're thicker skinned than me when it comes to criticisms and stuff. How did you handle the press and all their sniping at you, not just going at Michael Howard, but other things as well?
1: Oh, I mean, I think you handle the press in different ways depending on what's happening. I vividly remember at one point uh, they christened me Doris Karloff. <laughs> So uh, one day my secretary pressed the intercom and she said, uh, "I forget which one it was. Say the Daily Mail. Daily Mail on the phone for you." So I took the call and before the man could say anything, I said, "Hello, Karloff speaking," <laughs> and that is the way you deal with it, as you would with bullying. You know, that's the way you deal with it. You you join in. You laugh. It, it loses its sting. Um, when they were criticizing me for things I hadn't done, I used to get pretty miffed but it was an occupational hazard um you know to go back to an analogy I used earlier it's like sort of saying well you know I want to be a soldier but I don't want any bullets to come in my direction if you want to be a politician you're gonna get the bullets isn't it yeah,
0: yeah yeah, well talking of bullets and what's going on in Ukraine and Russia
1: uh, yeah yeah where do you see it ending up I think um, this is only going to be solved when Putin finally goes. And I think Putin is ill. Um, but I think that's the only way this is going to be sorted. He has too much face to lose. And Now we're at the pitch where there's nothing really we can offer him. You know, in the very, very early stages of Ukraine, we might have said, what can we offer Putin that will save him some face but keep Ukraine safe? What, yes. what can we say? We're past that stage now. It's, it's a bit like fighting Hitler. You you reach a stage where no, absolutely no compromise is possible, uh, and I think we're at that stage now. And uh, only by the West keeping to supplying Ukraine with arms can they resist Putin. And I think they've got to go in, go on resisting Putin until either the Russians have enough themselves, and there's plenty of signs that public opinion there is changing, uh, until the Russians have enough, until Putin. Uh, goes for whatever reason, I don't know. But what I do know is this: I see no way at all of a short-term solution. We're we're in for the long run on this. Yeah. I'm afraid, so. I'd I'd love to say the opposite. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Zelensky knows it, and I know it, and everybody knows it. That you know, there is no quick solution tomorrow morning.
0: Yeah. And of course, there's there's the argument as well that uh, Mr. Putin has put round himself or his yes men, and that some of those could be even worse than him as well. So even if they did take out Putin, you might get someone twice as bad.
1: I don't think that would would actually happen, at least. I mean, you might get somebody twice as bad, but I don't think it would happen with regard to Ukraine. I mean, Putin thought Ukraine was going to be a quick legacy, you know, that he'd be able to go and overrun it in, if not in minutes, you know, in days, or certainly in a few weeks, not months and years, you know, and that's when he thought it was a quick legacy, it isn't. Any successor will recognize that um, and will take advantage of the change to say, you know, what can we do over Ukraine? Then, I mean, it won't be a straightforward case of them saying, well, we're going tomorrow morning. It'll then be a long negotiation. But I don't actually think that will happen. He is surrounded by yes, men. He is surrounded by people who are utterly loyal to him. Mm. Uh, And uh, that, I'm afraid, is, is, is just something we have to recognize. But where I think hope lies is amongst the Russian people, because when this business began, huge sways of the Russian people were right behind Putin. Uh, they thought this was the right thing to do. Now, gradually, as the body bags have come back and, you know, social media has, um, has pointed out what's going on, opinion is changing. You've got young men fleeing the Russian borders to try and get out of the draft. Yeah, yeah. You've got people now who've seen their sons come back in body bags. Um, it, it's different. Uh, opinion is changing. Uh, and uh, that is crucial because when public opinion changes, eventually there is change at the top.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One final question before we get to the final question. I sound a bit like Paul there from the Bible, St Paul from the Bible. Um, <laughs> so we can wrap it up. What would you say then if people say, oh, yeah, well, you call yourself a, a Christian Anne, but look all of the people that are dying in Ukraine and, and Russia on the borders. Where's God in all
1: this? Ah, well, that comes back to the very question you asked right at the beginning: Why is God? And as I said, this Earth is not meant to be happen. Uh And I'm as guilty as anybody, uh, as I said earlier, uh, of expecting God just to to magic away problems. You know, I'm 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 just as guilty as anybody else asking Him to sort things out. Yeah. But I quoted Hacksaw Ridge, <coughs> Desmond Doss, just one more Lord, just one more, and I think we ought to get in that mode of thinking
0: Wow! and thank you so much for for sharing all that the final question then is before i say cheerio to you uh it's something that i always do i ask our guests to choose that the hero as someone who's uh, not a, who's uh, not in the bible and definitely dead so that you know years to come oh. we can't go and say oh yes but have you heard what such and such did subsequently so and-
1: oh, sorry hang on, <laughs> hang on. Brilliant. Good job, this is a podcast and not an not a, open-air broadcast, yes,
0: isn't it? Yes, is, Do you know what? I might keep that in, just the phone call going. <laughs> uh, right, well,
1: oh my the right, hero.
0: Right, right, let me just introduce you again. Right, thank you for that phone call. <laughs> so, Anne Widdecombe, it's been a sheer pleasure to talk to you today and listen more importantly.
1: Who is your Christian hero, please? I think my Christian hero is Teresa of Lavala. Saint Teresa of Avila, for this reason, that when she was on um, a a journey of good works and helping God, uh, her boat turned over and she emerged. And instead of saying, "Thy will be done, she said, oh, God, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. Good for Teresa.
0: Tell us more about Teresa, please.
1: Uh, well, there's not a very great deal to tell that. that That's the bit that always stands out in my mind and the bit that I always quote. Um, and, of course, Teresa of Avila is very often muddled up with Teresa of Lisieux, and they were two completely different people. Mm-hmm. And these days, of course, we've got Mother Teresa of Calcutta, whom yeah. I could quite easily have nominated. Yeah. But I'll tell you somebody else I might have nominated, but I didn't. Um, Phyllis Bowman, I... who for decades ran... Uh, the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children. Yes. And Phyllis never gave up. She never gave up. It didn't matter what parliamentary reverses we had. It didn't matter what went wrong. She just kept going the next day. And she um, took a vow that she would give up drink until uh, we had managed to um, reverse aspects of the 1967 abortion rule. Uh, And she gave up drink from that point. And she never had another drink. Wow. Um, when she was getting a bit elderly, I used to say, look, we've got to get some progress on this because I want Phyllis to have a drink before she dies. it <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. Phyllis Bowman. I, In fact, OK, I'm afraid Teresa of Avalon might have to take second place. But I do like that blunt talking to God. And it was from the heart. Yeah. And I I think they would have laughed up there.
0: Yeah. And how many years ago were we talking about for St. Teresa?
1: Oh, you're going back centuries.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. And Whiticum, it's been a privilege, and I really do mean a privilege to listen to you to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. God bless.